Scene 4. We navigated through the reeking Nairobi CBD. One hell of a big concrete jungle brothel, making a raft of traffic blunders and ending up in some restaurant in the pretentious Kilimani neighborhood. At the bar, itself smelling of cheap liquor, unwashed bodies, roasted goat meat, maybe donkey, and other gutters that come when broke middle-class men and women gather to watch football while negotiating illicit sex, but masquerading as socialization. My date sat next to a buddy who astutely sneaked into what was expected to be a two-people romantic get-together. I sat directly opposite her, training my eyes on her smooth face, praying and cursing at the same time, hoping this would be the day to remember, the occasion some novelist and biographers would retrace how one hell of the Busira clan started. Dreams, dreams, dreams. When another toothpickish waitress, whom I previously knew, approached, smiling devilishly because she knew of my previous doomed expeditions, I smiled back, giving a fake impression that was not like those other days when hunting expeditions were successful and great zealot warriors like me could bag home a big prey. To impress the date, I ordered a full chicken, even though it would do a massive damage on my already malnourished pockets. Quickly, she jumped and said, I'm not eating. I'm a poor eater. God damn. I insisted, fully aware that either the stupid, malicious, diabolical, fire-breathing devil had taken control of the situation, or the good old almighty lord had blocked us from uniting, staking our future on unknown plans, thus saving the best for last. Dejected, my balls deflated badly. When I checked them, they were hanging loosely like used condoms. When the reality sunk, they disappeared into the abdomen, squeezing my kidneys a few inches upwards, thus dislodging my diaphragm. My heart. The heart that craved for her warmth was pushed to the edge of my breastbone. I nearly suffered a fatal combination of pulmonary thrombosis and coronary thrombosis. Kaboom! Heart attack! I needed a physician, a heart doctor, but there was none around. I temporarily lost sight, but I could see the pale and ugly gnarled face and steel wire beards of Somali warlord Mohammed Hersey, the evil man who acquired the unenviable nickname General Morgan for annihilating thousands of Somali rebels in the 1980s in Hagessa under the orders of a more evil dictator, Mohammed Siad Bari. The last time I checked, the bastard was broke. Although there was no doctor around, I comforted myself that God would not abandon his faithful warrior like me. Because he works in mysterious ways, I remembered a great drink called Guinness. I ordered it. Slowly, each sip I took from a d***-sized glass brought new life into my body. My muscles relaxed, each taking its right place in my body, the temple of the Lord. I was whole again. I murmured lyrics from Atomic Kitten's heartwarming, whole again. Looking back on when we first met, 
I cannot escape and I cannot forget. Baby, you are the one. You still turn me on. You can make me whole again. Time is laying heavy on my heart. Seems I've got too much of it since we've been apart. My friends make me smile, if only for a while. You can make me whole again. After much beseeching and feigning a soft, caring smile on my face, even though I was bleeding inside from a non-existent internal injury, they agreed to order some food. And the order was as provincial as it was revolting. Two plates of french fries, two smokies, two jugs of tea. These Kikuyu women who populate our Nairobi drinking holes are a strange breed of its own. Uncultured, randomly underdeveloped in every aspect of life, except husband snatching, swigging cheap liquor, and staying in bars late with other women's husbands. But they are hot, like their Kamba sisters. As my date and her friend munched, moving their mouth as if they were sharing dinner with Queen Elizabeth, we spoke. We spoke nothing worth talking about, nothing worth writing about, nothing worth telling my readers. Maybe, just maybe, the only sensible thing in the conversation was when I told them as thus. Women should start better. They sneered at me. But I added something to this effect, quoting award-winning journalist Chris Jones. The trouble is, most women act as though they're sexual Olympians, as though they're doing the men in their lives the greatest of favors, merely by presenting themselves like a downed deer strapped to the hood of a car. Some of you are deluding yourselves. Sex is not like pizza. Only boys are. Even before they cleared their potato strips, they wanted to leave. Call an end to a strange date. At least one was inciting the other. Women will always be women. They even threatened to leave me in the bar in full view of other men who respect me as a grand knight in fighting for the rights of the skirts. Despite her pretty face, modest job and sexy physique, my date confessed to being a poor eater. I will carry the rest because I hate wasting food, she said. I nodded. Thank God she did not talk about her sex performance in our boring dead date. We continued with small talk. All the time, we looked at each other with fake affection. The fondness that comes when a prostitute is having the first orgasm of the day before she transforms her toughened crotch into a punching bag the whole night. Looking back, mine was a genuine affection. I did not know about her. I slowly, sexily, methodically, and professionally sipped my Guinness. Perhaps in search of greatness, as its advertisement says. Their meaty faces first turned pale, then red, and finally crimson. I knew an equivalent of a verbal roadside bomb was about to be explored. So, my glass went bottoms up. No greatness, as the advert shitters tell us in their screwed up marketing gimmicks. Last time on Kiss Number Zero. We should be very, very afraid because that can happen to you tomorrow. It could happen to your brother. If you're in a powerful position today, you could disappear tomorrow and no one will give a shit. I'm going to disappear. I'm going to disappear. 
ila lunch time walikuwa wanakuja kuvuta feki alikuwa somehow wanakaa somehow disturbed kidogo kavuta feki moja wakaniambia wewe mwaka wacha nikimbia kwa ofisi nakuja basically while i was still in london i got telephone messages text messages from a good mutual friend who said where is this man possible and initially i i sort of dismissed it as you know maybe the guy is looking for possible is not replying to his calls or anything then when it got persistent second day so i jokingly i told the guy what do you think do you think i brought him in my suitcase to london i mean london is obviously in nairobi i must have been among the last people to see him. if bagongo can disappear what about you less than 1000 people know of his disappearance what about us what about me for doing this video The story of Bogonko Bosire has a lot of mystery surrounding it. On one hand, his personality makes Bogonko the perfect victim. His disappearing acts lend to this. On the other hand, the work that he was involved in raises a lot of questions. His final days, he took a trip to a little Kenyan town two hours from Nairobi, Mwea, where he apparently met a woman. This woman is not known to the public, has never been interviewed by anyone, and she is faceless and nameless, piling on to the mystery surrounding Bogonko's disappearance. There's this young girl who was seen last week Bogonko, I think somewhere in Mwea or something. Uh, we tried getting in touch with, again, his friends in office, in friends in government, to try and locate this young girl. So they are protecting this young girl at the expense of our friend. This mystery woman, we'll call her Jane, not her real name. We are censoring her name and also distorting her voice for safety reasons. Jane was thrusted into public limelight by Denis Itumbi and has been a cause of massive speculation. Based on Itumbi's assertion, many people believed that she was among the last people to see Bogonko Bosiri alive and that she has something to do with his disappearance. She has not spoken to anyone until now. Let's bring in our producer, Vinchon Chogu. How easy was it to contact Jane? Tell us the tale, just from the beginning. Long story short, it took me about two years to get this girl's contact. This lends to my next question. How did you know about this girl? And why the secrecy around her? We found out about this girl from Denis Itumbi's public statement. He mentioned a girl and where she is from, but withheld her identity. 
We all know stories of unknown girls who happen to be there when prominent people are assassinated. For example, both Chris Msando and Jacob Juma were in the company of unidentified women in their final moments on earth. So, it is understandable that people like Dennis Onsarigo and his former classmates at KIMC were anxious when Dennis Itumbi revealed that Bogonko had spent his last weekend with a woman whose identity he could not reveal. Two years later, upon further prodding by Vincho, Etumbi shared more details about this woman. That's an interesting story about how Bogonko insisted he wanted just someone to hold him and stuff, and she offered to be that person. And uh, she experienced the three days war. And that was the last time, by the way, Bogonko. Because after that, he was only seen in Nairobi. After that, after that, he came back. She has even photos, by the way. I remember we kept telling Bogonko, that's why when I was in Nairobi, I was looking after Moya. And he kept saying the guy was easy. Of course, being a man, he tried what he could. But the chicken, I believe, a narrative says, Nothing really happened, but they had lots of conversation, which would benefit your documentary. For sure. Yeah. I, I personally knew at a time when she had a problem with the neighbors. We met on Facebook, she asked for help, I called, she was helped. She's authentic. She, I, I've not met her personally, but I feel like I've met her due to the conversation she has given, the details she has given about Vogonko. She, she's a star. She has the perfect record of the last moment. It's good that you brought that up because I think she's a perfect encyclopedia of what Pogonko was going through at the last moment. And so, Itumbi was the only person who had information about Jane and Bogonko's trip to Mwea. No one else knew about her and the trip. The family found out about her through Itumbi's Facebook statement. <laughs> That was Alkana, Bogonko's brother, confirming that the family did not know about the trip or the girl. So, Vincho, did you meet this woman? Uh-huh. Yes. So they'll call you, eh? Then have a chat with them. Just give them those last moments of when Bogonko visited and those photos, if you still have them, of him in a barn, a kipanda mat. Uh-huh. Eh. Yeah. There is a guy who was calling that night and Bogonko was mad. Bogonko was mad. Or something. Or something you're saying when somebody was calling at night. No, 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 you can be sure. It's, a, it's, just a, it's just something to be, we are just celebrating Bogonko. Bogonko's life. Okay. Eh, Uru Kenyatta is still president. Okay. Sawa, sawa. Okay, so just for maybe what, maybe when the guy took him, they'll go. Ata kutext, ata kutext, ata kutext, ata kutext. 
Uh. Alafu mwambie just just flow tu sikuwe kitu guarded kitu tu just flow ongea tu mm? okay, mm. ni ni sisi tu tunasema tu at least tufanye kitu bana tusikuwe ati bongo ali disappear then you all quiet As you can hear, it takes a lot of convincing for Jane to grant us an interview. When Itumbi released this statement on Facebook and revealed her existence, many people demanded that Itumbi produce her. She saw these posts on various online platforms, which made her nervous and made her fear for her safety. She went underground. This became our next obsession. We had to get her on the podcast. Luckily, we have our producer, Vincho Chogu, for this assignment. Mwea, a constituency in Kirinyaga County, is popularly known for rice production. We found Jane waiting for us at her home. Uh, she cooked for us. She welcomed us as if she'd known us all her life but she was nervous, which is understandable. Imagine meeting someone, inviting him to your home, you spend a weekend together, and that person disappears a few days later. Suddenly, everyone online is baying for your blood. Then, two years later, when you think it's all over, four women, Friends of the guy who disappeared show up with film cameras and microphones asking questions. What would you do? Because I'd be nervous too. In this segment, you will hear my producer's voice and three others, Wanjiru, Peggy, and Kate. They interviewed Jane together. How, how did you meet Bogonko or how did you connect with him? Uh, Bosira connected on social media. We were on the same campaign platform, that is, we were campaigning for Jubilee. Uh, so maybe that's how we met. Yeah. And uh, he told me he, would, he really wanted to see me the on, on social media. That is on Facebook. So it's like he really wanted to see what this was in person. And that's how I got to meet him. Yeah. So when you say on social media, there was like a special like a Facebook page for Jubilee or? Um... Not really. Uh, it was not actually on the Jubilee so, uh, Facebook page or something. It was just general. We happened to share mutual friends. Yeah. And then you would see what you yeah, what have posted. Yeah. She sounds guarded and cautious. Remember, this is her first time doing an interview, which can be intimidating. Yes. Uh, it seems to us that she was trying to do everything but the interview. 
She was doing the dishes, serving us juice, asking us if we're okay, being a good host generally. Kids from the neighborhood uh, showed up and they seemed to love her. And we tried to like persuade her to get back to the interview. Ah, I think we should start it all over again now. I know what your vote to ask. <laughs> At least have an idea. When the team turned off the cameras and sound, Jane confessed that she was not sure she wanted to continue with the interview. After much reassurance from the team with a promise to protect her identity, the interview progressed. He asked me for my number and asked me where I live. That's when I told him I live at Kirinyaga, gave him my number. And from there now we would maybe like talk. That was actually after the win. He felt like I should have been part of the people who are celebrating the Jubilee win. There was a party somewhere. He invited me for the party, but I never made it. Yeah. There was a party in Nairobi. Yeah, for, for mm. Jubilee. I actually thought he was joking when he, he said he was coming to visit me. And uh, later I realized he was very serious. And because I was like, I jokingly told him, fine, you just come and visit Kirinyaga. And I was like, I didn't know he meant it. It was like, Nimeenda kuchukua gari na nakuja hapo. Nikamwambia ni sawa tu. When I realized it was serious, I got in touch with a few friends, told them this this person that I want that, that who is coming to meet me. And um, I give them his details. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Um so then for how long did you communicate before he he moved here? He came to visit you? Uh, for quite a while, yeah. Close to two years or two years, yeah. Bosera to me was more like a brother, just that I'd not met him. And this one guy I used to call when I'm stressed up. Anytime I would feel I really need someone to talk to, he was, he was one of the people I would call because he had a way with his, with his antics. You know, he'd tell me something and I would end up laughing. Or he would tell me something that would make me feel like I'm being stupid. I mean, why is this stressing you up? And I would be like, at the end of the day, I would feel better. So he was more of a brother to me. And that is actually even when I realized how serious is coming, I, I, I had nothing to fear. Yeah. Yeah, when he came, we even discussed about his blog and um, his passion. He told me he's very passionate about journalism because I remember I asked him why he's hitting on people on his uh, blog so hard. It was like he's passionate about his job. And I asked him, don't you think it would, uh, it's, don't you think you, do you really have facts? About he told me that he just can't write something that is not that he has no facts about, yeah. And because he stayed here from Saturday to Sunday, would you leave him here and then go to work? Did you cook him some food? We'd have our lunch here, supper here, but it's like we were all minding our own business. If he wants to come read from outside, we'd come read here outside. At night, we'd wake up, go read, yeah. Many people, 
would be nervous to meet a celebrity. Especially if that celebrity was outspoken like Bogonko Bosir was. Someone who publicly wrote stories that brought an unwanted spotlight on several women. And so we talked to her about her state of mind before and after she met Bogonko. And we also asked her how Bogonko conducted himself as a guest. Now, because we had interacted a lot with him, I think I was, co I, I was comfortable. It's not like I think, yeah. But somehow I feared his other bit of, yeah. But I realized, I think when he came, he was quite opposite of what I knew him on social media. He didn't have issues. He didn't have anything that really made me mad. He was like very respectful. He would not even smoke in the house, whether it is at night or not. He would leave the house, go smoke, and then, yeah. Was he drinking at this time? Yeah, he was drinking, but not that bad. Mostly, he would buy drinks and take from the house. That is only in the evening. Yeah, apart from maybe uh, when he came the following day, he went to a joint somewhere in this place. And uh, he told me he wanted to interview the guys who were there about the youth fund. He wanted to know if people really know about it and all that stuff, the ways or you, whether they have, you know. And he told me that he was planning to visit the 47 counties and do some interviews on the same thing, especially meet with the youth. He actually wanted to interview me. I told him, I realized he interviewed me in a very bright way. He asked me one question about Wezo, maybe at eight, another one at around 11, before he realized it was like, yeah, very sharp guy. Mm. Earlier on, Itumbi mentioned that this girl did not have a sexual relationship with Bogonko. We asked her if this was true. No, 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 no. He never made those advances. Yeah. He knew I was dating. Yeah. Hmm. And so once we established that their relationship was platonic, we asked the girl about Bogonko's time in Moya. We wanted to know his stake on Moya. Have you realized his interest? I think there was Moses Courier who was being interviewed or something. I could tell his, his attention was so much on whatever was happening on the television. He would walk, ask the young guys questions, then come back, see it. Yeah. He actually never appeared rude to anyone at any particular time during that visit here. That's why I'm saying I saw the other side of him that I never knew. Yeah. He took photos of his last days. Why, why, why did you think of doing that? Memories from it's, I mean, this celeb. I've met someone, I've, it's just like I, I would take photos with you, you know, we've had good moments. And he's actually the one who was telling me, I don't need to play a photo. He, Nikifanya, he even took photos of donkeys in my phone. You know, he was like, donkeys at night and all that stuff. He was like, I remember like the photos he'd take of the table where he was. You know, he was like, he's in a pub, but whatever is there on the table is something selling very differently. You know, it's at 
trust condom covering on the table. We have struggled to get pictures of Bogonko in the course of our investigations because he did not like his pictures taken. But then, Jen tells us that he asked her to take photos of him. This was out of character. Was Bogonko foreshadowing his disappearance? And was this his way of leaving clues in case he went missing? Dennis Itumbi posted one of those photos that Jane is talking about. When Itumbi posted this photo, it looked like a surveillance photo, like someone was following him. This made more people question the intent of the photographer. And maybe I would like to clarify that the reason as to why he was, I took the photos, I wanted to capture that moment as he crosses the road to the pub. He was actually going to take a photo of that pub because it had been written Jubilee restaurant. You know, he was like, guys here are so much into Jubilee. Yeah. So, you, like, I, I like that you clarify that. Did you did you fear for your for your safety after you went missing? Not really. I knew I I knew I was like there was nothing sinister with this visit here. And I knew I had not played any faulties. I wasn't guilty, so there was nothing to be afraid about. Yeah. This woman was among the last persons to see Bogongo in his final week. Maybe she has some other clues that could be useful to the police. Did anyone uh, from like the CID or the government um, speak, talk to you about his last? Because like I think you are one of the very few people who interacted with him, and, and like four days is a really a long time. Well, if in the course of the investigation to find him. I talked to one media person and I also talked to Itumbe. Yeah. Actually sent the photos to Itumbe. But not uh, never spoke to a CID? No. Mm. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, so how how you how how did you become friends with the Itumbe just by speaking on the phone? Um, Itumbe would interact and engage each other on social media, and uh, during the campaign periods, I realized I was like personally also I was so much into Jubilee. Anyone who was supporting Jubilee, I would follow the posts and, and I would follow him. The updates and yeah. Since she was never interviewed by the officers in charge of finding Bogonko, we asked if she noticed anything that was odd or alarming about Bogonko. She told us that there was something in Bogonko's demeanor that made her worry but she interpreted it as Bogonko suffering from some sort of alcohol withdrawal. 
do you remember any any stories um, he told you or any questions that would be like that would seem odd or out of place at some point i think he really looked disturbed i didn't know why but knowing his drinking habits at some point i thought it was the withdrawal symptom because it's not like he was taking that much when he came here I hoped he would probably tell me, okay, I, it felt like there was something disturbing him. And I hoped that maybe by being, you know, like accommodative, he would open up. But I wasn't going to push him to do that. So of course I had to like make him uh, gain the confidence in me. So it was like I had to give him time. So I expected maybe after the visit, we shall keep meeting more friendly. How did you find out about his disappearance? Mm, I saw it on social media. After, after I left here and went to Nairobi, mm. did he uh, like Facebook message you or call you? Yes, he did, yeah. We asked her if she could share the messages that she and Bogonko had exchanged. I don't have the messages, yeah. Because I lost the phone and yeah, it's okay. Mm. And I, the photos were deleted. Yeah. Um. Contrary to many people's beliefs, Jane was not the last person to see Bogonko. Was he here just the, for those four days, or did you have more no, uh, he actually came on a Saturday, then I think he disappeared on Friday the following week. Yeah. So, here is the lowdown on the timeline. In the beginning, we told you that nailing down exactly when Bogonko disappeared is key to resolving this mystery. And so, this is what we now know. We do know that Bogonko went to Mwea on the 14th, which is a Saturday, and came back to Nairobi on the 17th, which is a Tuesday. These dates are ascertained by what we know first from our interview with Jen. She told us that Bogonko called her on that Tuesday as soon as he arrived in Nairobi. We can only believe her. However, it's... Only the Kenya police who can summon Bogonko's call logs and prove this to be factual or not. That's the first reason why we are settling this Moya story. The second reason why we are settling this Moya story is that Bogonko's cousin, Fidelis, also told us he saw Bogonko that Tuesday. Your school was 17th. On 18th, it was on a Saturday, don't ask your news that Westgate calls Juninini. Sanka, mini Kwashua was the end of Westgate. Nikajaribuk call number Kiko off. Kukol tonight, go off. And he sang this song, Chakutum. He hummed along the song Chakutumaini Sina. And I was impressed. I was like, I didn't know that bit, that part of him. Yeah. This old Catholic hymn that Bogonko was humming to sounds very symbolic. It is a deep 
theological Swahili song. I have no hope but the blood of Jesus. The lyrics go. Through Jesus, I stand, for he is a solid rock. It speaks directly to Bogonko's situation. We do know during this time, he was troubled by something. So, was he running away from something or someone? And so, the Mualid becomes a dead end for us. Now, what? Next time on Kiss Number Zero. It's, it's just unfortunate that all these years uh, we don't know what happened to Bogonko. I guess also because of uh, the way he had lived his life towards the end, he didn't have any real allies who would maybe come out more publicly and say, demand something. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad thing. And his disappearance is, is, is a loss to Kenyan journalism. Kiss number zero is hosted by me, James Smart. Additional reporting, Vinchon Chogu. Production house, Supersonic Africa. Sound engineer, Muna Chuba. Video editor, Sharon Ongayo. Theme music, Brian Sigu. Voice artist, Yafesi Musoke. Producers, Vinchon Chogu and James Smart. Consultant to producers, Abdullah Boru. Impact producer, May Lebo. Script consultants, Chachi Lotieno and Monica Ndogo. If you like Case Number Zero, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they drop. Sunny, <laughs> feel.